You're listening to Out of the Box Success with Audra Bartlett. In order for you to live your most extraordinary life, you're going to have to be willing to think outside of the box as to what success truly means for you in your business and life. Hi, I'm Audra Bartlett, certified success coach, multi-passionate, multi-business entrepreneur, and I've come to shake things up to get those creative juices flowing and get you really believing in what is possible truly for your life. There, I imagine, were some judgments and criticisms that you faced, Carrie, when deciding to marry Thomas. Um, And I think often part of that is fears coming from the person uh, passing the judgment. Um, So are you able to speak to some of what you encountered with that? Yeah. So, uh, and even internal fears, right? So I had to get past myself first, actually, um, in some respects. So um, I did have the internal conversation about how this would impact my life, particularly when, uh, you know, it was clear that we were headed down a path of, um, of like longevity and true relationship, right? So I had to, you know, really ask myself is number one, is this something that you can do? Um, and, uh, and then is this something that you can do publicly? Um, you know, because like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher and I'm a coach and I'm a mom and, uh, you know, I was a grandma at the time. I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, you know, I'm a friend, all of those, uh, in all of those identities, how am I going to handle, um, you know, this, uh, this, this relationship if, uh, you know, moving forward. Um, and I didn't want, I, I wanted to make sure that I had that conversation with myself early on because I didn't want in any way to lead him on. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be honest and open about that because we were being very honest and open with one another. So uh, ultimately, um, you know, that I decided that uh, that I didn't know if I could or not, to be honest with you, but I was going to make it uh, I, I was, I was going to do it. And I was, I was going to do it because I believed that he was worth it. Mm-hmm. And that uh, just kind of shifted my perspective to um, uh, that, you know, to outside of me, um, you know, but early on, uh, so my youngest son who lived with, uh, who lived with me at the time, he knew about the relationship. My mm-hmm. sister knew about the relationship and a good friend at the time knew. Outside of that, nobody else knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I really kept it kind of hidden. And he even, when he proposed, um, well, when we were talking about, you know, where this is going, he had said, well, I want to, you know, I want to talk to your parents. I want to talk to your dad. And I was like, I cut him off. I was like, absolutely not. That will not be happening. You will not do that. And so he uh, tried his best to change my mind on that. But I said, no, this will that was part of the, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but mm-hmm. I'm going to, so I'll figure that out later kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so when we got married, it was, uh, it was my, um, those same three people that knew that we were, that we were married. Nobody else knew. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I did a thing and then, um, a week, 
about a week later, I think it was a week later, um, you know, we have our, my, my family is very close and we meet weekly uh, to have what we call pizza. It's, it literally is pizza every Saturday night yeah. and anyone who can come. It's actually pizza. So it's it not a metaphor for anything. Yes. Right. So, um, so that uh, it, it typically is at my sister's house. So I went to pizza that Saturday, um, you know, and nobody knew, of course, except my sister. Well, she can't keep a secret. And she felt like it was not, uh, it was dishonest not to say anything, which is true. That was right. Yeah. Like it's true. So uh, she let the cat out of the bag after I left that night and told my parents. And, you know, of course she calls me after and she goes, well, I told them. So you're just going to have to deal with it. I told them. And I, <laughs> And I was actually relieved, uh, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. I wasn't mad or anything like that. I was relieved. So the next Saturday, which was pizza again, uh, so we always just default to the same seat. So my father sits at the head of the table. Imagine like the dad sitting and he has that presence, right? He's very stoic, mm -hmm. you know, and I was sitting next to him on what would be his right hand side, you know, on the other side of the table. And uh, he said, so. Um, I hear you have news or something to that effect. I don't know, remember exactly how it was, but I was just like, okay, we're going to get right into this. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I told him and he, uh, the only question he asked is when does he get out? And I said, well, at that point it was seven years. And, uh, I said, unless he gets clemency, you know, before then, and, and, you know, he could be out before then. Uh, and so he just kind of sat up as stoic as he could. I mean, he's just red everywhere. Right. And, uh, he goes, well, then I'll, I'll meet him in seven years. And he was like, if I'm still alive and I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. so I'm like, all right, well, that's over. <laughs> yeah. Well, now yeah, we're just, we just here went on with dinner, yeah. like just went on. <laughs> right. Uh, my mother uh, so we, my sister and mother and I were meeting at Olive Garden. I think it was like that Wednesday. So three or four days later, and my mom was in the car with me and Thomas happened to call. And so he's on the car, which I, at that point, couldn't figure out how to get him off the car. Like I'm mm -hmm. driving. So I'm like, yeah, trying to, you know, one handed do this and it just didn't. So I'm like, hi, honey. And, you know, he says hi, he starts talking and my mother just burst in. She's not the kind of person to like hold her tongue, yeah. by the way. So yeah. she just burst in. And the first thing that she said to Thomas was, um, how could you? Mm. And I'm like, okay, here we are. I'm like, mom. And she's like, no, I don't care. I need to know how could he, this is so selfish. And she went just on a tirade about how wow. selfish he was. How could he do this to her daughter? And and Thomas re responds after she he listens to the whole tirade. I don't remember mm -hmm. much more detail. You like blacked it out. That. You're like I can't. I can't right now. This is so it. bad. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and he just says so just lovingly and sweetly. He said, "You're right." And it just took all the like air out of the vehicle and she just took a breath and she said, yeah, so tell me how, you know, why, tell me why. And, you know, he went on the whole spiel about, you know, I couldn't let her go. She's amazing. And, you know, just went on and on. And by the end of the conversation, so I, I don't know if anyone, any of your listener, listeners know Rochester or Greece, 
So we, he called at Ridgemont Plaza and we um, got to Olive Garden, which is probably about, I'm going to say three miles away, mm -hmm. three or four miles away. By the time we pull into the parking lot, four miles away, she is smiling and laughing. And as we walk into Olive Garden, my sister's already there. Of course, we're like 10 or 15 minutes late because we ended like we, you get 30 minute phone calls. So um, mm -hmm. we spoke the whole 30 minutes and um, she walks in, she sits down at the table. My sister's already there. And uh, she said, I think he's a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, thank you, Jesus. So like, yes. <laughs> so there was still, I mean, it wasn't perfect. Do you know what I mean? But at least mm -hmm. she had had like, it, it settled her spirit, it settled her mm -hmm. heart. Fast forward, um, again, on Wednesdays, we as a family were meeting for Bible studies every uh, every Wednesday, and Thomas would call in to those Bible studies to be a part of them. Mm -hmm. Personally, I wanted him to do that so that he would get to know the family, they would get to know more about him. I never really had a lot of expectation about how that would work out. But I thought, you know, listen, if anyone could do this, it's God. He's the one who brought us together anyway. So, you know, you got to fix it. Okay. So <laughs> this um, is your fault. Fix it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you did this. Okay. So you're, it's on you. And sure enough, um, after now my father would sit in the back, uh, there was like a, um, family room area and it backed up to the kitchen with an Island. And my father would sit, at the island and not say a word like everyone else would at least be cordial and say hi Thomas and not nothing mm -hmm. from my father just I'm not talking to you and as um you know we're we're having the the these bible studies I don't know how many of them but we had several of them and after one of them my father comes up to me and he said are you visiting Thomas this weekend and I said yeah I, I do every weekend so I'm like yeah mm -hmm. he was like I I want to come and I'm like oh okay all right. So I said, I'll send you the, the uh, clothing restrictions and I'll pick you up at whatever time. And uh, my mother ended up coming. Uh, they met him and honestly, they have loved him ever since. Mm. So um, it was, uh, you know, what, what, what was a really rocky start, um, you know, and rightly so, I guess, um, turned out to be, uh, you know, a true blessing. And they love him now. They have supported him ever since then, um, you know, with whatever he needs, advice, you know. And uh, and here we are. Um, I will just also add for the larger stigma, um, you know, there there is stigma. Um, you know, people have this misconception that uh, there's something wrong with me for marrying someone in prison. And uh, um, I can't tell you how many times, you know, in, in media, in conversations, you know, that I've had to have those conversations or hear those things and, uh, you know, and, and shift those narratives. It's actually one of the reasons why we started the blog, because we wanted people to know that we have an actual relationship. We have an actual marriage, even, even in, with my parents, with my mom particularly, um, you know, she, she would say things that would, uh, that would kind of indicate that she didn't believe that we had a real relationship or a real marriage, even though she knew our love was real, but how could you have a relationship with the barrier of incarceration, right? He lives there. 
and um, you know, and you live here and you don't know a person until you live with them kind of thing. And I'm just like, yeah, you have no idea. So yeah. <laughs> you well, don't know a person until they have been through incarceration, because mm-hmm. let me tell you, if we can get through this, we could get through anything and yeah. that's real. So, yeah. um, you know, so, so we wrote the blog because of that. And I would, uh, anytime I had really difficult conversations with people, I would just give them the card to the blog, blog and say, just please read, you know, please read it. Um, I've reached out to talk shows, Dr. Phil kills me. Um, he has done a couple, you know, the, the platform that he has where he could break down stereotypes and stigmas, but, uh, he has continually, um, uh, used his platform to perpetuate them, but Mm -hmm. I have written, you know, his show and sent them the blog that, because we do, um, you know, and it is possible. It's very difficult and New York state makes it very, very difficult to maintain relationships whether it's uh, marriage or family relationships, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, uh, but it is possible and it, and people do it every day. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, when we're talking about that, the narrative around prison wives or a person who would decide to be in a relationship with an incarcerated individual, like you're saying, Dr. Phil, the media, it's like a mentally unstable woman. Uh, and that's almost exclusively what you see, uh, life after lockup, like all of these is typically highly dramatic, highly charged, absolutely, uh, you know, the worst of the worst kind of relationship, like the relationship that nobody wants to be in, right? The most toxic, terrible relationships. And that, um, that by proximity, you are also a bad person because only bad people would want to be with bad people. Right. Right. And that you would be lacking your solid judgment because of that. But I think the, the truth is for so many people making the decision to partner with somebody who's incarcerated is a really difficult decision. It takes a lot from both people to be in this, to be committed to it, to, consistently show up despite all of the things, despite when, um, you know, you go on visit Carrie and the guards are terrible to you and they're dehumanizing to you just for visiting somebody. Like that's the part, like it's dehumanizing to even go to visit. It's dehumanizing for the people in there and that there is, so to commit to something like that, is not an easy decision. And it's also um, in some ways, right? On the the other side of it is there is blessings in it too, because the distraction of the world in a lot of ways is taken out of some of those interactions. You're at a visit table for six hours, no phones, no other people, nothing else in the world is there besides you and that person. And there are no other instances like you and Thomas probably do not sit down at a table anymore for six hours and talk just for six hours at a table, right? Because you're in the world now, you have things to do. And so you actually, in a lot of ways, know Thomas more than some people probably know their spouses because of this concentrated time, this time where you we're almost forced to know everything about each other, to talk about everything and to work deeply on your yeah. communication because the communication is primarily all you have. Yeah, 
Yeah. Nailed it. That's so true. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll, I'll add what came to mind when you were talking, when you were, you know, talking about the six hours at a time and really knowing a person. So the number one question that I used to get before Thomas came home uh, was, you know, and, and it's always like, well, how do you know? How do you know? And I'm like, how do I know what? <laughs> like what? You know, how do you know? Right. How do you know that he really is who he says he is? And how do you know he won't go back to his former life again? And I, I mean, I really just started laughing at the question and I'm like, because I know that I know that I know, like how I know the back of my hand, I know this and I know him. I said, you don't, you don't go through the things that we have been through, um, you know, with the trauma of incarceration with, I mean, we went through COVID for, through part of it. That's a a whole, whole other podcast episode. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, we had our, our son was shot nine times in Buffalo during our marriage. Uh, Another son was in um, a a near fatal car accident. Uh, His mother passed away. Uh, several relatives passed away. You don't go through those things with someone um, while they are incarcerated and not know who they are. Mm-hmm. You just don't. So, so I know, and you know, you can rest assured he is who he says that he is. Uh, but uh, you know, and I can't blame them for the question. I don't want to come off like I'm blaming people for that question mm-hmm. because it's it is a that's a, a valid concern, right? Mm-hmm. But like you said, going back to that communication and sitting there with him for, you know, six hours, um, going, having the FRP. So FRP stands for family reunion program. It's those conjugal visits, you know, that we talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't, you don't go on those, um, you know, every four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks and, you know, and spend that dedicated time with someone, uh, while you're going through these things and not know who you're getting on the other side. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's like, uh, it's, you know, a whole, it's a weekend essentially of also concentrated together yeah. in a, in a trailer, as they call it, um, yeah. setting where without distractions, without other people, you're concentrated and getting to know this person. And so, and in a lot of ways you're missing out on the noise of life, but you're getting kind of the, the pure essence that some people wish they could have more communication and time with their partner like that. Right. So, um, even the time and the letters that we wrote for, for mm -hmm. years back and forth, right. Who does that anymore? Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. That the, the snail mail conversation, right. Um, so I really want to, you know, look as we're looking to this, um, you know, this love, this conversation. And I want to talk about the capacity for change and evolution of a person. And Carrie had said, there's tons of hidden wisdom behind these walls. And I don't think the general public realizes the sheer genius that is being withheld from society. Um, You know, incarcerated individuals, creativity as a small example with cooking alone like could be a primetime cooking show series because um, there is just, it's a small example of ingenuity. And I've even heard conversations about, you know, having 
an incarcerated individual sitting next to, say, a Stanford graduate with the same set of things in front of them to create something. And what is, you know, what develops from that time, from that space and from the minds that are in a lot of ways being wasted behind the walls. What have you seen like Thomas and, you know, Carrie, but really I think Thomas more of like his, he's, he was behind the walls and he saw this and kind of speak to what you've seen from people. Yeah. Um, I heard somebody say necessity is the mother of all ingenuity. Right. And so when you're in prison, you're deprived of so much and you try to have a sense of normalcy, which you can't have, but in order to survive, literally, because the food that they serve in there, I'll just talk about the food for right now, um, it's horrible. You talk about mush, you talking about unhealthy, you talk about soy filled. So I know some gourmet chefs in prison who know how to get a hot pot, break it down, turn it into a eye, a third wire here. And you're like, what does that smell? And they didn't made a gourmet meal just off of things they found in the locker where they may break up some Doritos and turn that into seasoning because they didn't ground that along with some other stuff out of a ramen noodle packet. And, you know, so just the necessity of that, what people do. And I've seen it across the board. I'm talking about how to make a, I know people out here don't even use cassette tapes anymore, <laughs> but um, a cassette tape player and turn I mean, even illegal things, um, I never knew how prison tattoos happen. And so guys know how to take the motor out of a cassette player with some string and thread and a needle and turn it into a tattoo gun. I mean, I've met some of the most smartest people in prison. I always say like, if you'd have been taking focus more on that when using the street, you wouldn't even be in here. Some of the stuff that <laughs> guys come up with, I mean, and also for the bad, right? That's just like what I see out here on the internet. The internet to me is just a beautiful tool, but people have also know how to use that for negativity. So the same thing with prison. So some of the greatest things in prison that people come up with, I've seen some of the most exotic weapons and just, you know, this crazy stuff. But um, yeah, you're right. I think with so much time and less distraction, a person get a chance to get into their mind and the human mind is phenomenal. Mm. Like you can do whatever it is that you want to set your mind to. And I've seen people do it um, in prison. So yeah, just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Yeah. Some of the cooking, I'm not a big cooker, but people, I was around a lot of people who know how to, you know, turn a gum, um, ramen noodle soup and some beef sticks into the best gumbo you might ever want to <laughs> experience. So yeah. It sounds it sounds like you you weren't huge into cooking, but you got some of the benefits of the people around you. <laughs> I got the big benefit. Those were my friends, right? I taught all the classes, they did all the cooking. So. That's right. You're like, oh, long day of classes. I'm gonna come back go. for dinner. Thank you very there much. You go. There you yeah. go. There yeah. You but go. even some of the solutions to our um our societal problems. I mm -hmm. uh you know, you talk about a brain trust, right? So there, these these guys and women, um, you know, people in general that are living, you know, these uh, where we seclude people behind these walls uh, that have been through, 
you know, like my grandmother used to say, they've been through some things, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. and they, um, and, and they have the solution to, to some of our problems. Um, but mm-hmm. because we, we stick a label, we slap a label on them, you know, as convict or offender or, you know, felon, um, we, we don't think that their voices are, uh, um, you know, powerful enough or strong enough or um, valid enough to listen to them. Uh, but they really do have, uh, have some answers. Uh, and, and our, you know, we, in the work that we do, we hear uh, this phrase credible messenger a lot. Um, but they really are credible messengers, you know, the people who have been through these things, people who have, have um, struggled and suffered with addiction and, um, you know, drug use or selling drugs or uh, mental, you know, I, I hate the term mental health issues because it's, it's just blanketed, but, mm-hmm. you know, people who have struggled with, uh, you know, with, oh. with their, their identities, with who they are. Um, you know, with depression, with anxiety, um, you know, they have answers for people out here. Mm-hmm. And, and we really do need to, to listen to them. Uh, we, they have answers for safety. You know, we tend to, um, you know, we tend to look at safety in one way in our, uh, in our country that there's only one way, um, you know, one way to it. But uh, I believe that, you know, if we, if we recognize the humanity of everyone, and listen to their their voices and empower the people who uh, have ver- first been victims. Um, you know, many people who are in prison are have been victims first. Um, you know, they they can tell you how to create a more safe safe society. Um, you know, but we have to choose to listen to them. Yeah, and I think that you know we have a lot of people that don't have these firsthand experiences trying to uh, create change or adjust things or, you know, and it's not to uh, discourage or discredit um, anybody from trying to enact change, right? Um, But that we really need to allow the voices of the people that actually know the problem to be heard that they lived the problem. It's it's like the conversation of, you know, and like, why would you ever take advice from somebody who was divorced on your marriage? It's because they learned lessons from that divorce that they can offer to you so that you don't make the same mistakes. It's the same conversation when it comes to incarcerated individuals. They have been through some of the most some, some people can't even talk about what they've been through. Right. Um, they don't even have words. They can't even find the words. And when we talk about really creating change, it's from those, that brain trust, it's from that genius that we as a society still completely discredit because we can't see past the, as I was saying at the beginning, the good and bad, the black and white, the someone in prison is bad and we shouldn't listen. Um, So as we kind of round out this conversation, I want to just really touch on um, first that acknowledge that the prison system, um, the prison system is a place that a lot of people 
unknowingly believe fosters rehabilitation. Um, and the truth of the matter is that it is not uh, really set up for that. So a lot of people think, oh, well, that's the whole point. They go in and I've often heard of it as the time is supposed to be the punishment, the removal from society as a as an idea is the punishment, but the treatment of human beings within the prison system is so violent and so unimaginable for the majority of people. And I know that some of the work that you guys are doing is to start a shifting the narrative b enact change around laws and uh, sentencing and time that people are are being you know held longer than necessary within the system so i would love if you would speak to a little bit about the experience of it not being a place of rehabilitation and how on a human level, how important it is, the work that you're doing and the change that you're pursuing. Yeah, I, I would just say prison is filled with a lot of despair, depravity, and that breeds hopelessness. And um, nothing in prison actually helps a person to rehabilitate. It's really up to the person. You have to be a phenomenal person. I look back at me and I have support um, I had family, I had people that I was able to speak to, having that family connection, right? So many people in prison who end up in prison sometimes has burnt that bridge. So they are lacking that and that hinders the, the, the moving forward. But for me, I was fortunate enough to have that and that and that human connection. And those are the people that I was learning from. So in prison, the theory is throw you in this warehouse and punish you and deprave you and you'll somehow learn how to do good. That doesn't even make sense. They even have science that says moving away from punitive practices to more affirmative practices works. It's even done that with dogs, with our animals, right? Mm -hmm. People know that that's the proper way to help a person yeah. move forward. But for, for prisons, they don't do it. So some of the stuff that Carrie and I um, are focused on now is the advocacy aspect of it. We're trying to put a human face to this, to let people know that people in prison are human and that reform needs to take place. So along with the uh, Center for Community Alternatives, we are actually pushing a bill, a CNC bill, Communities Not Cages bill, where there's three aspects. And one of them I'll just speak to, Earn Time Act, where it's coming from that affirmative behavior type of thing. So any type of accomplishment that people have or they've, or they've accomplished, they will get time off their sentence for it. Now, this is not a free pass. This is not we saying that people should just be let out of prison, but it's more of that affirmative behavior type of thing because think about this. If a person goes in there and learns a skill, like they may even come with the ulterior motive. I'm just doing this to get out of prison. But just by default, learning a skill, learning something, you never know when that light bulb might go off, but more importantly, it can gain skills that can help them be more productive when they are released from prison and ultimately change the culture and the mind state in prison, right? When, when you when you have something to fight for, to work for, it gives you hope. It makes mm -hmm. you feel better about yourself. It motivates you. And that's what's missing um, in our prison system. So this is what 
we're focusing on and we've been screaming that from the day well Carrie started before I even came home mm -hmm. but um we have been screaming that from day one that more needs to be done to give hope to humans like we're doing a disservice mm -hmm. when we take hope away from human beings but prison doesn't foster that doesn't help it um in fact you get ridiculed picked on mistreated for doing the right thing um in most cases so and I'll let Carrie speak to that part of it but I wanted to get out there that um, we cannot continue to deprive humans and not give them any hope and anything to work towards. Mm -hmm. yeah. And expecting to be successful upon their return. Yeah, it, I mean, it it just, it never ceases to amaze me that, you know, we live in a society that um, thinks that the way to correct violence is to inflict violence. Uh, I just... Mm -hmm. I, I don't it's understand. A, and in any other in any other way, like like the example of a dog, we know that you can't beat the dog to make the dog be a more well behaved or happier dog right. or live a better life, right? right? But like right. how how can we not see <laughs> that that yeah. doesn't work for human beings? Right. Exactly. Right. 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 But 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 we what we do though is that we um, you know, we we create this facade that in some way we are being um, more um, we are being more victim friendly, right? That uh, because this person did this, we have to do this to them, and in some way that makes victims feel better. And that's just not true. It is it's not true. Um, you know, the the our system is is not victim friendly at all. Uh, as I said before, the majority of people who are sitting in prison have been victims themselves first. If you have, uh, if you have ever been in a space uh, with uh, with victims, they will tell you that that uh, more punishment on top of punishment on top of punishment is not what they want, and that it does not make them feel any better. Um, you know, so uh, so what we're doing is not working all around. You know, when when a person commits a crime. I wish that we would ask ourselves, why did that person commit this crime? Mm -hmm. And then work back from that to find out what we need to do for that person to make them whole again. And then do the same for the victim, right? If not, do that for the victim first, right? So what, you know, what, what happened to the person who was harmed and how can we make that person whole? And at the same time, do that for the person who caused that harm. And what we would then create is a more therapeutic system. We would have one that addresses the societal needs and issues that a person has for going into prison in the first place or for committing the crime that got them there. And we would also have a more therapeutic system for victims where we are all whole rather than um, you know, draining communities and draining families uh, of their, um, you know, of of people, of resources, of money, of um, uh, uh, of you know, really just um, health, right? Health and wealth, because that's what this is about. Um, and so, you know, and and Thomas has said, and uh, I've never checked the statistics, but you know, people say that uh, ninety percent of people in prison are going to come home one day, and who do we want as our neighbors, right? Do we want someone who has been beaten, who has been uh, abused, who has, at the hands of the state, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, 
uh, do we want that person coming home that's more angry and is, uh, a, you know, quote unquote, better criminal or a more hardened person? Or do we want someone that has been, uh, has been rehabilitated, that has skills and that has, uh, you know, has um, worked on the issues that they have that got them there in the first place? Do we want whole families, one in seven children in this country, um, experience incarceration, uh, of parental incarceration, one in seven in this country. That's huge. That's, that's um, huge. And, yeah. and we do nothing to, uh, to help, to help kids and help families, um, other than, uh, you know, other than, um, you know, continue to cause more harm. So. Yeah. Cause, cause at any given day in a visit room, it is families, it is children running around, it is babies, it is grandmothers, it is aunts, it's uncles, it's all of the people, right? It's all of the people impacted. And when you're talking about this rehabilitation, one of the things I know is one of, as humans, one of our deepest desires is to be seen, is to be mm -hmm. really seen. And violence is the quickest way to feel significant for a lot of people. And we're taking people that have a, a deep desire to be seen, to be seen, to be loved, to be acknowledged, to to be recognized for uh, their, their worth. And we're moving them further and further away from that versus towards that. Yeah. Uh, so further and further away from any sort of rehabilitation. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll point one more thing out because, yeah. it, you know, it, it's, um, uh, it is really notable that we learned in during COVID that we are actually more connected, right. Than mm -hmm. we, we ever thought. I, I keep thinking of those graphs where it shows the little dots, right, and how COVID spread. Well, think about that on a relational level, right, on a community level. We are just as connected on those levels. And when we look at what creates healthy communities, we know that healthy communities are ones that are connected, that have that are resourced, that are that, that where needs are being addressed. And then those dots, those relational dots, right, start to get bigger. And as those dots get bigger, we all get healthier and we all get safer. And mm -hmm. that's what we have to, that's the picture in our minds that we have to have. We have mm -hmm. to pull those people back in because they're connected to us anyways, right? We mm -hmm. have to pull those people back in and we have to make our dots bigger. Yeah, that's a really beautiful, I got chills while you were saying that, like, that's a really beautiful visual. And the, the you know, what is it, seven degrees of separation um, yeah. that for anybody who's listening right now, even if you think that you are far away from incarceration, or you don't know anybody, the reality is, you do. Like you do know somebody, somebody mm -hmm. that is your neighbor, is your friend, is is in your circle right now, has been impacted by it. And because we, in a lot of ways, feel like we can't talk about it, that the society shame, guilt, and view of it completely affects people's ability or feeling safe, even having that conversation. So mm -hmm. even if you're listening and thinking, oh, well, it's not me, it's not my family. It is. And mm -hmm. when you talk about those dots and the change that it would just swell in the impact. As we kind of finish this conversation, um, I want to ask the question, 
how do you now feel successful in life and what does your most successful biggest imaginable future for the two of you look like good um great question i'll just say uh success for me is having a happy beautiful loving home with my wife and us going after our dreams and goals right not just having dreams and goals but going after it and to me that's what success is because even if we don't necessarily uh, capture the dream and goal that we're going after we're accomplishing other things learning more about each other learning more about life about love um you know i'm 47 years old and i'm still learning higher levels of intimacy and love with my wife I thought I knew it all and I really don't know anything like so as long as we're going after our goals and our dreams, I know we're going to accomplish something. And that's what success is for me right now. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I feel like um, uh, like success is is really just um, sometimes it's just. Winning every day. Like, and winning looks different every day. Sometimes winning is, wow, I didn't cry today. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> there's days, For real. right? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and sometimes there's, oh my gosh, wow. I did cry today and I really needed that. And that is a win for me, right? Um, and then sometimes it's, wow, you know, we we got this legislator to sign on to this, um, to this bill that we really need to get passed or, you know, sometimes it's really, you know, it's, it's getting our kids to listen to us and, you know, take our wisdom. Sometimes that's winning. So I think success uh, constantly changes and morphs. Um, but ultimately, it is, it, it's, it's really about, you know, creating spaces where we can feel connected and be happy and, and, um, and not just happiness, but joy for, you know, living this day um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that God has given us. Yeah. And uh, just to to summarize, one of my one of my favorite things. I probably am not getting this quote exactly right, but the person who thinks he knows knows he knows nothing. Um, and the recognition that we all, no matter how much we think we know, we're only on the tip of the iceberg of of what we yeah. can possibly know, understand, grow into, and become. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. We are going to finish with what I call the down and dirty three. These are three questions I don't know the answer to, and you are just going to shoot the answers at me. So we mm -hmm. have, what is a quote that has profoundly impacted your life? You want to go first, babe? Uh, yeah. So mine is um, the, the opposite of um, poverty is not wealth. It's justice. Mm. Uh, Danielle Sered said that in that, it, that, that, just changed my whole life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I can't quote the person. I mean, I can't name the person who I got this quote from, mm -hmm. but I've lived by it and all the things that I do. And I even give this to people when I'm training them or teaching people, but you have to have passion over reward. And what that simply means is that you can't get involved with a job. You can't get involved with a project. If you're simply just looking for their reward. What gives you happiness is that your passion is first. So if you're doing something that you're passionate about, that's usually what your purpose is, and you will be able to success it. I mean, uh, succeed in it. You can't have that reward be your your sole motivating factor. Yeah, because the reward at the end will just feel empty. Yep. There yeah. You go. 
Uh, so what is the book you think everyone could benefit from reading? Oh, uh, well, Carrie, I was so blessed and fortunate. She was always sending me books while I was incarcerated. So I learned so much and so many great people, so much great wisdom. Um, I'm thinking about until we reckon, but I'll say this because I have to finish this book myself. It was it, it was touching the history of just this country. And I mean, I'm in this real anti-racism type vibe right now. So I'm going to say Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. Powerful book. So very deep. There's a lot of meat, a lot of substance, but um, he has proof behind all of the studies and it, and it is deep. It's dealing with racism and, and anti-racism. Yeah, I'm going to go with Until We Reckon. Again, my girl, Danielle Surratt. But um, Until yeah. We Reckon, um, I, I don't know. I, can I, do I need one? Because I have like- yeah, throw, <laughs> throw, throw, throw them out there, go. Really? <laughs> so, okay, so Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Yeah. Um, Evicted, I can't think of the author's name right now. But and then Poverty by America, same author, um, Matthew. It's Matthew someone, and I can't think of the last name, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, and-, and well, I'll get them from both of you and I'll post them in the show notes so people know can can read them, right? Awesome. Um, and what are three words that describe your vision for your most extraordinary life? Mm, nice. I'll go first, babe. I'll just say hard work, one word, dedication, and God. Mm. Those three things will get us to an extraordinary life. Yes. I'll go with um, love, compassion, and passion. Beautiful. Well, thank you both for joining me today. This uh, is going to be a two-parter. So this, yeah. I already know that, but I think yes. this was rich and this was beautiful. And hopefully it can really hit, you know, the right person will hear this right? It'll speak to the right, not just person, but people and mm -hmm. allow people to really change their perspective um, yeah. and allow there to be more love in this world. So, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for your work too, of doing this yeah. too. Thank you for way. having us. Thank yes. You. Till next time, you too can live your most extraordinary life. Much love. Want to learn more? Go to audrabartlett.com where you can learn how to work with me, sign up on the email list, and even book a free call with me.